Hello and welcome to episode number 18 of the Awesome Algo podcast. Today we have a very special guest, MG. He is a co-founder of a platform and a protocol called Go Plausible, previously known as um, Algorand Proof of Attendance Protocol. Yeah, and previously named. Yeah, and essentially we will try to do a high-level overview of the platform's architecture, its main features, what distinguishes it, it from the other competition in the Algorand space, and perhaps some major comparisons with bigger protocols that provide similar capabilities. And uh, with that, thanks again for coming to the show, MJ. The stage is yours. I would really love us to start, um, as it's given with most of the guests on the show, uh, with your background. And if we could uh, perhaps start with, you know, can you share a little bit about your early years getting into computer science, you know, what sparked your interest in engineering and uh, computers in the first place? Hey, um, first of all, hey everyone, hey Algorand, hey Algofam, everybody, and thank you so much, Al, for inviting me on. Uh, uh, here's a great honor for me. Uh, very simply, I just started, I've been uh, more than 25 years on the field for the computer, uh, whatever role, because it was a lot of variations. I started with network and security, got drawn to software uh, design and architecture and since there's a point where everyone involved uh, on that level to uh, somehow recognize for some tasks when you want something done it's better that you do it yourself at least do uh, the first version of it yourself so i got drawn into more serious developments and learned uh, 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 some programming languages and got started with that and i've been uh, a little bit around eight years focusing on developing solutions myself with help of my wife, who is actually the co-founder of Go Plausible, 15 years happily married. And uh, since the first, uh, actually, weeks or so, we started to co-developing with each other. She's focused on front-end solution engineering, and I'm more focused on back-end APIs, data, and anything related to smart contracts recently, because we are actually on the field of ELTs. So this is a brief history of uh, me. And uh, very simply, I just, uh, I would like to think I don't care about the programming languages, but more care about the data structures and algorithms. Once they are there, well, once you understand them, it doesn't matter which you know language, you, it's just a matter of syntax. And syntax, uh, very, very uh, related to abundance and actually uh, the nurturing nature of uh, availability for information uh, here and there, first on the internet and secondly, now uh, we're in the age of AI and it's easily there. So syntax is not a huge problem if you get dedicated to it. So uh, I would like to think that the most important part for uh, anyone involved in computer science is the problem solving. So once you learn how to's regarding those algorithms and data structures and learn some kind of problem solving mindset, I think you're set to go. I absolutely agree with your point and uh, thank you. Thank you with this uh, wonderful introduction. I guess I'll spare you from the question of asking what's, uh, what was your first ever programming language you had experience with, but if you want to mention it, it would be uh, Yeah, would be you will well, laugh but... at me, but uh, you know, the first programming language, what was actually, it was not a, you know, whole programming language, more like a scripting language. I started with R 
Mm. My first serious assignment yet, and it was a very heavy project, categorization of tons of actually scientific papers written uh, in order to, you know, finding you know, duplications, counterfeiting, copying, and all those sort of things. And I just did it with, uh, uh, needed to do that with R somehow mm -hmm. because it, it was very restricted. So uh, I started with R and uh, just continued to learn my way into for a small portion of time, I used .NET for a very large banking project, one of the most serious ones I've had so far. They're, uh, actually, the first risk management system that was implemented in my country's uh, uh, banking system. And uh, so after that, I just immediately found out at the time, because it was the .NET version 2, the limitations of .NET and migrated into Java for, uh, I, I think, five or six years. And right after that, because of something, I just uh, left Java and never touched that back again and just came into this new paradigm, as I told you, to, you know, being floated uh, right among uh, uh, and not caring about the programming language. But most focused, I'm, I uh, very much love to use Python, JavaScript, TypeScript and Rust. These are the languages I'm, I'm most comfortable with currently. Uh, but again, it doesn't somehow not make a difference. If something is needed to be learned in order to provide some functionality or something that you cannot find in other languages, so be it. You need to learn it. Yeah, There's no way exactly, of it. Exactly. <laughs> I must say, though, that R is, in certain scenarios, is pretty great for data visualization and especially for like uh, dealing with data transformation, like the dplyr framework and the way they have this plugging system very convenient for data scientists to deal the with. Plugins it. are awesome. Um, in that ecosystem, you will find everything and the coexistence of the uh, C and C++ programming languages, natively, uh, native usage of those languages made it a vast plugin ecosystem for R that you can use for fast computation or, you know, whatever task you have in mind. Mind. So yeah, I agree totally. Agree. One of my favorite. If, if any data science enthusiast is listening to this and is interested into uh, making some cool drafts and uh, charts for algorithm statistics, uh, probably okay. check out uh, R and uh, the, the R Studio and the Deeplier. A lot of sure. things can be simplified there. Um, and I guess maybe proceeding a bit further in terms of uh, biography. What was your, and before I ask about Algorand, obviously GoPlausible is built on Algorand, it's going to be an interesting set of uh, questions we can cover there. But uh, before that, if we are to touch a little bit broader in terms of just the overall scope of decentralized systems, fault tolerance systems, um, prior to Algorand, um, what would you say was sort of the, one of the first thing that, things that you know, made you interested in this particular domain and what, what appealed to you the most about them? Actually, uh, my first encounter with similar technologies and, you know, uh, um, uh, more like cryptography or DLT, uh, uh, some sort of distributed ledger technologies goes far back to a project I was I somehow submitted to on uh, on Innocentive website, if you're familiar with. It was an old website that was using to 
uh, submit great challenges as ideas and invite people in order to provide solutions, some kind of bounty system. And uh, there, was, there was a project called Votem, and that project was some sort of creating a voting system based on distributed ledger technologies, cryptography, and so on and so forth. So my first encounter was uh, for that project, as I was one of the submissions, and I actually made it from the first round to the second round uh, of the 100 elected uh, uh, solutions. So that was my first encounter with uh, similar with this domain of technology, but I didn't touch that again for years after. Uh, and some of my, um, um, my close friends, dear friends, uh, the, were going to start a company uh, uh, working on some NFT projects on some blockchain. They ran an R&D, came up with some initial candidates. The most prominent one was Algorand and just asked me if I am interested to collaborate with them. So that was my first encounter. I ran an R&D about Algorand, uh, read, uh, 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 tried to read the papers uh, here and there, whatever I could uh, uh, somehow to, to take my hands on. And uh, right after that, based on two uh, initial uh, properties of Algorand, that was love, as, uh, love at first sight. Uh, number one was performance and number two was composability. These two for me was uh, the first two properties of Algorand uh, uh, so, so, so definitive that uh, for me it was totally convincing at uh, right at that moment and I just decided because I was in the middle of some changing domains phase in my personal life and professional life as well. So it was instantly the uh, the best candidate that I could count on in order to create or being part of the future of, of the economy as it is getting shaped by these new uh, uh, sort, of uh, sort of technologies. So for me, it was that. And when you speak of um, composability, if you could just expand a little bit on that, I guess, aside from maybe core properties of um, the consensus itself, you're probably referring to the architecture as a whole in this in this case um, exactly would be would and different be... different uh, building elements available in there because let me just uh, rewind a little bit back i'm a great fan of lego and lego architecture and lego way of thinking so uh, because uh, since I've, i somehow opened my eyes there were the dominant toys around me i just got into them uh, uh, since a very very early age and that gave me some kind of mindset around that. So uh, even um, uh, use, I use it in my professional life and I'm going to or, or trying to build something regarding the architecture. I always think, uh, think of it as a Lego structure. So we're starting by very distinctive, very raw building blocks and trying to get to that whole architecture as of a structure, not as of a, you know, uh, a big monopole or, or, or monolith thing. So uh, Algorand was uh, actually the only blockchain that had all of these basic Lego elements, different shapes that are needed in order for you to be able to create a bigger thing or bigger structure. So uh, uh, totally suitable for me and my way of you looking at things using all of those elements, the, uh, the, the, the standard assets, the smart contracts, atomic transactions, everything, they just help that because they are very raw, very basic and very essential and elemental in their own way, but they can compose with each other and create more complex structures. This is what you need. This is organic. 
So uh, whatever that create a very complex organic structure with very basic uh, uh, fundamental elements is what I fell for and I love to work with. Awesome, awesome. Yeah, I see. So you're, I guess, in this case, um, also referring to the L1 capabilities of the chain and uh, the way, I guess, particular features are basically designed in a manner that are essentially not overlapping with each other. And as you said, um, you can use them as building blocks for something very complex. Um, and by introduction of contract contract calls and ABIs, it just got to a whole new level. And, you know, it just got unleashed. It just waiting to be explored more and more uh, because the systems, yes, the uh, financial systems, the economic systems, the payment systems, everything that are building, uh, some are getting built right now. They are not as complex as the actual traditional banking systems in place, or for example, the industrial operation support systems such as ERPs and so on and so forth. They are not as complex as them. They, they are in their infancy. The technology, the whole technology is in, in, uh, somehow in its infancy. They need to get matured. And the way of maturity uh, gets paved in by the first building blocks and Algorand has them all. Everything is in place. It just something in need of getting you know uh, built more and more complex systems and they are coming regardless of the bearish market which is you know somehow doing us a little bit of damage and harm in terms of development and improvement but uh if there is one thing one thing real in this world that is change so all we need to do is be patient and waiting for the world to do as it does change and and I guess let uh, the developers uh, create. Well, everyone is, I guess, awaiting in these bear cycles. Yeah, um, we need to. There's no way. If you are a you know a builder or developer by nature, you cannot help it. Yes, you complain about conditions. You're uncomfortable. You're somehow uh, may go through some hard times. Everybody can tell you your mood changes everything. But the only constant thing, if you're do it by passion and love is building that will continue you cannot help it you know in your saddest moments you find yourself behind that keyboard and looking at that code and wishing okay let me do it differently it may work this time <laughs> awesome and that makes me think of a few questions that we can tackle closer to the end of the episode when we will talk a little bit about some you know advices for aspiring developers and engineers but uh, with that i guess um Let's talk about the main topic of the episode, uh, Go Plausible. So what is, I suppose, the the first story behind Go Plausible? How was the project first, um, first conceived? Um, if you could perhaps start with a little story behind, you know, the first days of the, of the project and um, perhaps uh, if you could also give a bit of insights into how you researched on, because I assume you uh, probably had to look at um, some examples in, in the bigger ecosystems outside of Algorand and uh, curious if, if you also found some interesting lessons there as well. Sure. Uh, actually, it goes back to an, a year and I, I think a year and a half uh yes uh, something like that ago and I, uh that was when i was working on some projects i i was freelancing on some projects and uh, uh i 
during the talk with uh, uh, with Adriana and separately with Johanna, uh, I, I, they just brought on a very interesting subject of algorithm events and venues and the requirement for them to be somehow uh, uh, First of all, uh, trackable some, to see, okay, what are the statistics? How many people have we met? How many people have we engaged to? And also be more engaging and more interactive. So at that, uh, and at the time, there was a, a project proof of attendance protocol but, uh, that was mainly working on Ethereum ecosystem. But that project was the only project that somehow was uh, workable through these scenarios for on-chain recording of your somehow your, uh, your your interactive attendance or participation or something like that so uh yes uh, uh, naturally and obviously i just uh, as i just look at it as a problem and in order to solve it the first step was research and to see what is available what are the other opinions and comments regarding that and how other people are trying to solve that but uh, the uh, the fact I just found was that that was a uh, because solutions are different. Some solutions are short term solutions, more like a you know a, a patch solution or band aid solution. In order to, for example, uh, a very simple example, when you cut your finger, you just uh, use a very simple band aid or you use a napkin in order to in order to stop bleeding, and everything else would take place naturally. So no more continuous solution for this problem problem solved very easily uh, within a minute or so but for some uh, for some more serious problems you need a routine you need some methodology to be uh, to guarantee that what you provide as a solution is first uh, future proof and then uh, guaranteed to be continuous continuously able to grow continuously able to uh, 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 to extend to expand and so on and so forth so uh first of all uh, that was the only project that was active on uh, such a similar domain that our problem was on. So uh, the competition scope, uh, uh, when we want to refer it in the uh, future in this discussion, it, it was completely narrow. There was only one actually project. The, the other projects were locating mostly on Web2 space. So for Web3 space, there was only one project strongly working and having a solution at hand, POAP project by POAP Inc., so uh, I researched them and I just found them uh, mostly non-decentralized and mostly non-permissionless to very, very high extents. So I just learned from it. I just set it aside and again, went to the problem, raw problem itself. How are we going to solve it in a very dynamic way, Lego way, if you want to call it that. So I came to uh, some idea of, okay, for anything that happens outside of uh, outside of on-chain realm, we can have a replica proof on-chain, and actually, if we uh, could implement it dynamically and com by configuration enough, by dynamic configuration enough, we can make sure that we have a system that can generate a proof for anything and distribute it on-chain to you know as many wallets as possible. So uh, that was the idea proof of anything. That was when the idea proof of anything got born. But since the first step, I'm uh, some. I would like to think myself as very simple and classic man. So I have a classic mindset and very you know uh, strict mindset on, about some things. One of them is respect. 
I always, I always try to have that code, respecting elders, respecting those who are pioneers, who tried uh, tried uh, some way for the first time, uh, so on and so forth. So out of respect, I just uh, said, okay, let's start by having a combination of the uh, uh, blockchain that I'm working on, Algo, for sure, and uh, the name of the protocol, which had the first step, uh, you know, took the first step. So that was totally honorary and out of respect move. I just uh, codenamed the project Algopoap. But in the uh, um, when the project got built and got some traction and got some usage, we got, you know, some frictions with them and somehow got, you know, threatened by their lawyer in order of, uh, with a lawsuit, sent some attachments, some PDFs, letters here and there. And we decided, okay, it doesn't worth it, uh, you know, respect to some extent. <laughs> and okay, let's uh, move beyond it because since the first inception of project uh, on the web uh, project website, there was a presentation of proof of attendance on Algorand, but the attendance word was glitching into anything. So the idea was there since the day one, and we just made it, you know, uh, extra unnecessary movement out of respect, which we corrected along the way and rebranded to Go Plausible. And here we are now and working under the name of Go Plausible as a brand. And the protocol name is Plausible. And the unit of operation is called Plaus instead of that you know, POAP name that they are using. So Plaus is the operational name for proof of anything on Algorand as a protocol. I see, I see. And yeah, I'm, I mean, so, sorry to hear about some misfortunes in regards to the original name. I recall, um, I recall that... I guess, yeah, on, on, on some sense, you could also view it as um, a way because... The name was weird. Since I've been told that the name was weird and I some kind of agree with that. You know, Algopoap was some kind of, you know, not as... You know, for brand name, I totally agree with everybody that, you know, complained about that. It was a little bit weird. But again, code names, project code names for startups, they're all weird, you know, Project Night Tooth, something like that. They're code names. And when you got into some phase that you need a brand for some serious yeah. business, you need to change them to some serious names. Yeah, exactly. And there was also, I guess, there, there's just far too many, uh, I guess, things in the ecosystem that at Algo in the beginning. So I guess this was also one yeah. of the ways to see how this can be worked out. But uh, on the other hand, also maybe um, for, you know, some layman listeners there who are not entirely familiar with what the heck we are talking about here. <laughs> um, if you perhaps could also, uh, before we also, you know, talk a little bit about some of the major features of the platform, if you could showcase a very simple um, explanation of how exactly this platform can help you for a scenario, let's say, and I'll pick something simple. Um, let's say you have a friend who is essentially organizing a, a concert, let's say a concert for a nonprofit organization. He has a he has rented a place that has 100 seats and he goes to Google or Bing or whatever, and he starts typing, okay, how do I make a registration system for that, right? How do I prove that, you know, these people actually attended this and they maybe like made some donations. And I feel like this is where Go Plausible can fit right in and solve this exact scenario. But if you could explain a little bit, um, well, sure. how? Uh, for whatever, uh, you know, event or interaction or whatever, uh, 
you know, physical, uh, uh, physical event that happens in the real world, you can create or generate a proof. And uh, regarding your example, when those hundred people uh, go to that concert, uh, in order to explain how does it work, they can simply find a QR code in front of their seats or uh, some displayed on a screen or on a banner. When they uh, when they scan that QR code, each one of them can can claim a proof regarding their attendance or participation in that event or venue. is as simple as that. And when an uh, when an event organizer wants to find out, okay, how can I do that? Uh, when they go for searching on Google, if they use the correct uh, set of keywords, because we work extensively on our uh, 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 search engine optimization process as well, if they use the, uh, for example, the words uh, uh, proof, distribution, and algorand, uh, uh, some correct keywords, they will be lead on the first page of Google. And also, if they ask uh, the, uh, the 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 uh, uh, the the, 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 the Chat AI agents such as ChatGPT very soon they will find out that they are they are getting aware of this concept and they can guide them. Okay, go plausible and QAP uh, uh, Inc. that are currently the ones that provide such a service. So it is easy to find us. And in order to provide those uh, proofs, in order to be able to author them, you need a Web3 wallet. But in order to claim them or participate or uh, 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 claim a proof that you have attended on that event or or in that interaction or or some anything else that needs a proof, uh, you don't need to have a wallet because we pro, uh, we uh, fr- uh, uh, since the start we provided the claiming process to be available in a Web two and a half way. So either you you are, you are just a pure uh, Web two user with a browser and internet connectivity, or you're a Web three user with a wallet on hand, you can claim your proof by simply scanning that QR code or clicking that link that is being sent to you as an attendee. I see. Yeah. So essentially, to recap here, the main use case is extremely broad and generic. Anything that requires a proof and anything that requires um, certification of a proof based on certain physical event, right? This could even be expanded to, uh, I could also bring up a quick reference to one of the projects uh, we are maintaining at MakerX uh, called Data History Museum, which essentially stores uh, records of earthquakes that happen on uh, Algorand blockchain. And I, I assume this is also one of the use cases where perhaps uh, Algo um, Pop could be uh, helpful as, as as a platform to essentially streamline some of this business logic on-chain computation to an already existing protocol that uh, well is, is is built for anything that requires proof um, and. Just to clarify a bit on the terminology, I guess when, for people who are not familiar with what Web 2.5 means, this is essentially just the terminology referring to usually um, authentication or authorization flow that hides certain aspects of dealing directly with wallet providers. Um, Not everyone is, of course, I guess, comfortable or familiar with uh, you know, dealing with mobile wallets and uh, memorizing 25 words in, in your memory. So there are certain businesses currently being built in the industry that provide features that allow you to hide and abstract this away. So you're presented with a regular email, login flow as usual, but then behind the scenes, it actually interacts with an actual crypto wallet. Um, but 
it just makes the experience a bit easier for you because it's still, you know, Web3 is still a very small, I would say, um, exposure towards if you compare it with big giants or technologies that everyone is essentially grown up with already. So that's that. That's what uh, Andrew meant uh, when he mentioned 2.5. But we are on our way. We are on our. We are on our own way in order to get there. And no good thing in this world, uh, you know, can be achieved in a you know very short amount of time. It needs patience and dedication. And when we pay that much uh, uh, patience and de- and determination and dedication to the subject, it will grow. It will you know be dominance. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, but yeah, like the, the topic of, um, you know, adoption of wallet providers, this is, uh, probably something that an entire different episode can be dedicated to because it's, it's certainly somewhere in the middle, right? We are not there yet. Absolutely not there. Like until you'll have your, you know, parents and grandparents grabbing the phone and easily navigating through the all the complexities of these current interfaces to send a transaction somewhere similar to how they do it with uh, banking providers, um, there's not going to be a lot of change. There's definitely need to be something in the middle it in terms may of convenience. Maybe because of the na- financial or monetary nature of, you know, how did this technology start? This technology didn't start by how can you say uh, send the postal co- card to your friend? It yeah. started by how can you transfer money easily from this point out on the globe to the other side. So by starting on that nature, because to all users and humans, you just open a very simple learning app or game app or music app on your phone without any care. So you open it, you explore it, you give it some try, you make some errors, you learn it, and you get savvy with it with, uh, you know, within no time. But... When that same user starts to work with something that works with, works with money, has bears the name of wallet or something like that, immediately it totally goes to some other areas of brain or pink or pink matter in terms of processing, and it's totally processed in different realm. You're more careful. You're very you know. Uh, uh, very well focused uh, right about what you're doing you're trying not to make any mistakes because your brain tells you that if you make mistake you lose money so this may be one of the biggest barriers of you know uh, having uh, blockchain technology as a day-to-day tool for everybody and every you know average user out there to go to for their daily lives and tasks and businesses and errands I, in my humble opinion, if uh, blockchain technology and DL technology started on, you know, uh, uh, not, I'm not going to say not fine, non-financial, but as much as the, you know, financial activities on the other side of your real world use cases, such as, for example, tickets, fan clubs, you know, uh, transaction of, uh, uh, for real estate, so on and so forth. Uh, you can count them, uh, uh, you can count them infinitely. If that was as as a strong aspect as the monetary or financial aspect of blockchain technology was uh, at the start, it could have gained a lot more traction and usage in you know common users out there. In my humble opinion, of course. But luckily, I guess this is certainly some of the areas where the expansion is happening. Right, uh, mentioning things like TravelX, perhaps uh, in, in in South America, and yes, exactly. um, uh, Lots things of, like. Uh, 
AI or Cobalt. an example, yes, uh, the, the the museum projects, the uh, national heritage projects, real estate projects, you know, you name it, the Planet Watch project, everything. So these give this uh, domain of technology a more natural and you know day to day life uh, sort of image, and people can communicate with that more easily, and they're daring about it. You, they can try an error about it, and that will you know make the uh, use case and the ground for use case a lot more vast than it is already is. Yeah, exactly. So anyone who's saying that there's not enough use cases for blockchain, well, probably it's simply because this is an area of expansion yet. And there's, uh, you know, the, the tech is being built. Um, doesn't necessarily mean that, uh, as you said, it's just a lot of traction and money and investment went into this industry and grown around this notion of let's oh just let's live in a utopian society and replace everything with, uh, you know, code, code is law. And uh, basically, let's uh, flip the banking system. But uh, of course, this is not how things are going to happen in the real world. And uh, these technologies are certainly useful in scenarios where you might probably not expect it. Um, exactly. And to continue on this, perhaps maybe if you can dive a little bit deeper into some of the, let's say, major features of the yep. Go Plausible platform you mentioned modularity um, and composability i wonder uh, whether i assume in this case we're referring to individual uh, features of the platform that you can also use independently or you can combine them to have a uh, i guess for more feature reach um, functionality available and yeah i guess after that would be very curious to have a, a quick rundown over the architecture as well if possible First of all, all the features are basic elements of you know, any interaction that could happen or occur in the real world. Uh, you have actors, you have data, actual data that's, that uh, uh, somehow is being transmitted or communicated, and you have the metadata which describes the whole scenario and scene for this interaction to happen. So what we did is that we are actually are doing as well because it is a continuous development and continuous effort, and it is growing, and we are and not uh, by any sense near our vision about what uh, uh, how we envision the uh, uh, go plausible or plausible protocol to be in the future so we are building toward that point but the ultimate goal is that you have all of these elements as configurations and as uh, configurable constraint controllers within a very very simple user friendly web2 format form that yeah, uh, for each one of them, the user decides, the author user decides whether to, uh, to to enable them or disable them. And they, uh, when enabled, some very simple configuration to uh, somehow tell the system as rules to tell the system what are the boundaries of this constraint controller. For, uh, let me give you an example. When, uh, you uh, you as an author are now uh, free to use, for example, to to set geofencing controllers for your proof distribution or not. When you decide to enable them, it's very simple. Just enable the switch during your setup form. There's only one setup form uh, through and through the whole platform to create a new clause. So it's not a complicated process, three-step process. You sign, you set up, and you finalize. That's it. And within that one form, the whole through the whole application, one Web2 form, you have different options 
you have uh, steps of setup, you can ignore them because the only mandatory thing for a clause to be created is the title. So uh, you can uh, choose for other options to be enabled. And when you enable them, for example, when you enable the time constraint, you have the ability to specify the start time and the end time and the time zone for that uh, for that specific clause scenario that you are setting up right now. And same goes for geofencing, same goes for enabling the page feature and lots of other features that, that are very simply a toggle switch. They can be enabled and configured very simple web two way within a form. So this is the meaning of modularity uh, and making everything configurable by the user when you create the scenario, proof distribution and generation scenario. And uh, just for the listeners out there, uh, and MJ mentioned plause. So plause, by definition, I suppose, is two things, right? Uh, and so I'm looking in, into the Gitbook, which is is very detailed. I think there are some sections that are going to be covered uh, once uh, you guys progress on the roadmap, but uh, you can already check it out at goplausible.gitbook.io, and it's also available at goplausible.com. You can find the documentation there. Yes, yes, so plause there. is basically an operational unit for the plausible protocol, and essentially it each of those is represented by a smart contract, which I assume user is basically deploying when he creates the uh, dynamic. Uh, behind every complexity behind the scene, but actually when you create a clause, you are creating a smart contract, dynamically creating in a smart contract, which is created by contract to contract calls from the mother smart contract. And by using the ABI calls, you control that via the mother smart contract you say for for example for crowd operations of those contracts and for more uh for interactive proof distribution features you only interact with that created a smart contract so go plausible as a service provider vendor goes out when you are uh, uh, interacting with that plus scenario and just have the governing role when you as an author want to do something with your contract. We don't interact with uh, uh, the, the end user interactions with their plus. So each plus in its own is an application. You create it on the fly, you set it up, and it is there on chain in order to serve via the APIs to the new user with, uh, who want to claim their own uh, 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 versions of that clause from chain. So it is a totally independent application on chain, which is dynamically created for your specific purposes reflected in your setting up scenario for that specific clause. And this, I guess, also brings up a point in regards to some, you know, perhaps uh, users may be listening to this and wondering, um, you know, what is, what is the, like, what is the distinct, key distinction between systems like this and let's say a person going to uh, some sort of uh, let's say web tool provider uh, that provides this uh, software as a service platform somewhere uh, and essentially just you know hosts his entire infrastructure on some uh, AWS or Google Cloud server and uh, it may be it may seem easy it may be familiar and things like that but uh, the key distinction distinction here that MJ just outlined is that the control over the plos that you as a creator essentially is uh, issuing and then the plos acting as the application is completely 
decentralized in the sense that there's no governing control over that entity. If you deployed it, you own it. It's it's a completely different, I guess, paradigm of shipping software. It's not like, you know, uh, an owner of the platform can go ahead and just patch something and essentially deploy it uh, to, to, to the cloud provider and the cloud provider goes down and entire ecosystem of things that are built on top of goes down or uh, there's an exploit or a hack. Of course, there are hacks and exploit and there's a lot of them in Web3 as well, but it, there's a key distinction in regards to how they happen because in case of a smart contract for example there's a lot less mutability in this regard because once you deploy the code it's not like mga can just go ahead and uh you know change anything he, he wants and they go plausible the contracts that are audited and that's also the reason why there's so much money being made in the auditing industry is because people are paying a lot of money for people to make extremely um, detailed audits for a code that potentially isn't going to change for long periods of time. And there's examples in Ethereum ecosystem uh, where, you know, you could see protocols uh, for decentralized exchanges, for example, being live for decades, basically, and some things are being built on top of them. But uh, it's, it's, it's a different mindset of building apps, essentially. And of course, not talking about decentralization. We had 17 episodes on this podcast already. Hopefully listeners of this are familiar what's the pros and cons over uh, having a centralized uh, architecture versus a decentralized architecture, but you can name a, a very good chunk of attack vectors that simply hosting on a decentralized architecture is going to prevent you from being worried about. And once again, you essentially own um, your own infrastructure um, exactly. completely. And I guess this if we could uh, just briefly touch on the uh, architecture as well for a bit more uh, tech-savvy listeners out there who may be interested in, um, and from my side, I'm also interested in, in regards to some tooling, uh, would be very curious to hear some of the you know feedback in regards to the um, tooling that you were using to build uh, these particular smart contracts. Um, as of today, just a quick recap, in the Algorand ecosystem, we have a large variety of different transpilers. Some of them are community-based. There are still some people, I don't know if any, but there are still probably some very hardcore people who are doing pure teal. We have PyTeal, we have Beaker, we have AlgoKid. <laughs> um, One of those dinosaurs. <laughs> Just use raw teal. I, I, I have a confession to make here. I, I cannot. I'm, I, I very easily... Coding Python, it's a matter of, you know, the paradigm of coding. I'm unable to use PyTeal. I tried. Honest confession, I, I'm, uh, you know, even other variations, because when it comes to stack programming, raw teal is the best representative of that stack programming. Your mind gets around it and comprehend it pretty much easily. And actually, it goes with the flow. You, uh, your mind operates in a stack programming when you're using raw tail. But with others, uh, I'm I just I'm more familiar and comfortable with using. Okay, if I want to write a complex systems and go OOP about it, yes, let's use uh, those languages. But raw tail serves me pretty good, and I love it. I love it so much to the extent that I maybe it's some. Kind, some kind of mental projection and uh, self-disability about it that I cannot use PyTeal and other high-level variations of Teal, but I'm pretty comfortable with raw Teal. Wow, yeah, Teal. And I, I suppose you also dealt with building uh, 
ABI compatible methods in in, in pure teal as well or yes, yes. Okay. completely completely and and it, because the whole thing is working based on you know, contract contract calls so it is uh, somehow woven into it uh, the, the system use extensively uses the ABIs all over the place since your uh, since the inception of your contract you're creating your new contract you uh, set it up and you uh, make it uh, you activate it as a scenario after that you you it's you as the author and your application smart contract out there but uh, again then your uh, uh, all of your interactions are in terms of abi calls into that contract so it is you as the uh, 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 some either author or claimer and that application on chain and you're interacting with that from client side no middle servers no you know hubs no nothing in between so direct interactions and those are needed for there as well i guess uh, someone needs to make a uh, applause to give a, a a batch of uh additional certification to builders in the algorithm ecosystem who do uh who build complex platforms in the road here because it's certainly something that you know is is um is, is somewhat of a, an accomplishment uh to actually I come from those backgrounds if you go back you know 25 years ago actually many and many of you know uh, uh syntaxes that we used back then were actually happening in this you know uh, very very simple stack oriented programming style so uh, i uh, somehow didn't find maybe for some because tooling lang uh, landscape has changed massively recently and uh, most recently by the rise of ai it's totally different paradigm. I totally agree that my mindset may not may not match the new, very young developers who are starting from the very very young ages right now. Because yes, you need to cope with your available tool set around you. When you're coming from age of axe and hammer, you are more comfortable with axe and hammer. But when you advance to the age of you know uh, chainsaws and drills and everything, you advance your mindset in order to be able to use them. But it never hurts for even for those that are using the higher level languages, tool sets, whatever. It never hurts to understand what's going on the knees, especially if you're an, you are an engineer trying to create a system. I'm not saying being able to you know, uh, work with that right code, uh, complex code in raw teal, but being able to read teal and, and understand what is going on without uh, yeah, some even ne needing to disassemble it. You just read the whole context as, okay, it does this, it does this, and it checks this, and it checks that. This much is totally recommended for everyone even if you're not using that. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely agree with you. And I guess this is also one of the big hurdles in general, if you look into, um, like uh, Ethereum is often brought up as an example of that because they also had the same um, evolution in terms of languages. Algorand is still in comparison is in, I would say early, early ages in terms of uh, improvements in the tooling and things like that. It's definitely evolving very rapidly, but Ethereum also had a very similar, like non-structured um, sort of bytecode-like language where you essentially, um, that, that essentially was uh, migrated into Solidity. And then on top of Solidity, you're also now having more sort of uh, dynamic variations around it. But uh, since 
I guess, like, uh, just to bring also a, a point that, uh, like, first of all, I completely agree with you. Uh, there's a lot of uh, very prominent builders in the Algorand ecosystem who are very paramount on uh, advocating for not hiding AVM complexity, basically. Not to say that AVM is complex, like you, any complex system is complex to the point until you understand the system. Um, but exactly. uh, since we are talking about blockchains and in most cases the application being built there are for financial sector systems that are built for financial sector never should compromise on consistency um, and if you are not compromising on consistency it means it has to be extremely secure if it is extremely secure it means that you probably should understand the stack on which you are building to a very lower level extent which in case of algorand implies being able to at least understand the syntax of teal understand cases where perhaps building something is beneficial to be done in teal versus you know more um, higher level abstractions because anytime you go higher level it means your your your, your computer has to make n hoops uh, from the code that you're typing that is structured and convenient to understand, perhaps for the modern paradigms into this, uh, you know, that may seem a bit overwhelming to some people, but once again, this is um, potentially something that can just uh, make your understanding of how sure. secure the, 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 the platform is and maybe identify attack vectors. And then uh, another point towards raw teal and maybe for systems that are doing transpilation to teal, uh, the more structured your raw teal code is probably the easier it will be for you're also going to make uh, the life of people who are doing audits a little bit easier because a lot of those processes they also involve you know reading actual teal code it's not just like you pay a uh, hundred thousand dollars and they just look at your PyTeal code and say oh it's all it's all great now you can you can go shift to mainnet they will inspect it very thoroughly they'll look into the raw teal and sometimes um, you know it also matters that the code is structured that is is in very readable format. It's not just the higher level abstractions that you build, but the um, the lower level stuff that is transpiled or built directly has to be potentially easily readable and maintained in that regard. And um, yeah, that's that's um, you know um, I, I can't speak much about the stuff on on the algorithm side, but uh, I'm always inspired by um, folks in the industry. Like uh, if, if you're familiar with uh, Chris Latner. Uh, the guy behind behind you know LLVM Swift and now he's doing this uh, awesome thing with modular and the module language um, and I, I think this is potentially something that um, the paradigm for example like in Swift right it at the high level looks like a very sort of um, it's it, it seems like and it indeed does have a lot of syntactic sugar right it's optimized for iOS macOS development but then if you're a hardcore engineer you can always sort of uh, have some guardrails, disable them, and just uh, have a, a relatively low-level access to, you know, C-like primitives and things like that. And uh, I feel like this might be the sweet spot eventually if Algorand matures enough to satisfy hardcore uh, builders in the community, right, who are, are paramount on the fact that AVM has to be um, understood and the complexity of it shouldn't be hidden, it should be simplified. Uh, versus, you know, people coming from other ecosystems or Web2 who are building basically simple things and, you know, just starting to learn these. Um, and yeah, that, that, that range of flexibility is potentially something that, if done right, could be a, a great boost overall for the adoption. Um, but, uh, well, we'll see. We The, the future is still ahead. So it's, uh, it's a lot hope, of building. Let's hope that it goes this way and it uh, proceeds as it is started and getting pace more and more and more each and every day 
And um, I guess uh, uh, I'll just try to outline it from my understanding of, uh, of uh, I was looking and doing some uh, minor research on the um, documentation you have on the Go Plausible. Um, so for people, I guess, interested in, uh, in the way, um, first of all, the, you also mentioned um, Teal, um, Eight, oh, okay, it's number eight. Sorry, uh, on the on the page with the architecture description it says TLB. I thought it's B, and I was like, wait, is that like some sort of uh, <laughs> work for it? <laughs> it's number of the T. Okay, 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 okay. Yeah, that that explains it then. So, uh, I suppose there are sort of three main um, primitives uh, that you can look at if if you're just strictly, and once again, we're strictly talking about uh, the smart contract architecture. Um, so we have the, the the parent smart contract, right? The, Main the, smart I guess contract. it's some sort of um, some sort of registry um, that essentially is a starting point once you want to create your own uh, pop. And I, I assume this is also made so that you are not wasting uh, the minimum balance requirements in the wallets of the users, right? And so that you can also have sort of a single track record to see all of the main interactions with the parent. Uh, because if you were to do it from the user's wallet, right, that would get a bit inconvenient. User basically, in this case, uh, has a lot of complexity, his minimum balance rises and things like that. So you come in to, uh, to the platform, uh, you interact with the parent smart contract when you're firstly deploying it. Uh, I assume it's also used for managing fees and things like that. And um, this is uh, probably like the the only registry contract that um, managed by uh, Go Plausible as a platform. Yes, in, exactly. In that regard. Uh, by managing, it means that uh, uh, we just can up, uh, we just can update it because all of the update, for example, we started the till version six and. Uh, upgraded it to, to till uh, version seven and and finally till version eight. So all of the features and functionalities added during these upgrades, they are reflected mostly uh, separately on child smart contracts and parent smart contracts. So parent smart contract is getting updates occasionally based on the upgrades that are available from the AVM itself. And then we have, um, well, ABI, right? The ARC4 specification yeah. and uh, using uh, ABI, you have um, the deploys entities, which are the smart contracts that are created by the parent entity. So now PLOS is once again, something that you as a user of GoPlausible own. Uh, essentially, this is what um, controls um, different metadata that you can assign uh, to this PLOS. And this is what your users of your PLOS are interacting with. Uh, when they are essentially doing the claims. And the claim in this regard is represented by um, an um, Algorand standard ASA, right? Um, an NFT. Yes. For now, yes. For now, yes. But hopes are that by rise of uh, non-ASA NFTs and, and assets on Algorand, for example, ARC72 mm -hmm. type of assets on Algorand, and uh, by supporting them uh, with Go Plausible, we can you know, open a whole new horizon for new opportunities and implementation scenarios. So for now, they are Algorand standard assets, but uh, it will, you know, uh, somehow get elevated and get improved by time. And we will be enjoying lots of new opportunities by rise of those kind of non-ASA NFTs and tokens. Hopefully. Awesome. And uh, basically, yeah, so the, the, the standard assets is something you get after you... Uh, 
deal with 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 the claim and uh, essentially this is your uh, digital certificate in some sense for people who are familiar with for example systems like uh, udemy or coursera you usually get like the certification at the end they also have a uh, um, in some cases it's a centralized sort of record where where you could see that you know th on this date this person received uh, this and this so this entity is completely decentralized the only difference is here is here it is decentralized and one other thing i might add the difference between these nfts or asas or tokens being trans uh, transferred and the normal for example nfts that you transfer from your wallet is a process that they are the, the, the claimer and the user going through in order to being you know eligible to being sent one of these certificates those all of those processes and interactions are available on chain and uh, uh, you know about uh, uh, usability of state proofs in the future when they are totally uh, uh, routinely used as a day-to-day -day technology from AVM, we have the opportunity of uh, creating the zero-knowledge proofs for every and each one of them. And without, uh, for example, exposing the uh, your Personally identified Exactly. You get a yeah. certificate from, uh, for example, your, your learning uh, or, or educational institution. And without uh, you know, even showing that NFT or showing the content of that NFT, you can prove that, okay, I received that NFT by just sending an estate proof and getting it verified on the other side. So this is the ultimate vision beside going multi-chain. Uh, for go plausible this is the last piece of the puzzle which makes it you know uh, the real and uh, feasible proof of anything uh, protocol so uh, by uh, 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 using that technology we're, we're just waiting for it to get matured and get you know uh, within the tooling ecosystem of the algorithm and after that it uh, sky would be the limits you can do anything and you can you know just prove it without exposing or disclosing anything and that would make the uh, uh perfect ground in order to nurture some uh, such solutions exactly and uh i guess uh the, we live in very uh crazy and uh, unprecedented times but that uh, makes me hope that sometime in the future you know governments are going to be a bit more uh privacy aware in certain regards and maybe zero knowledge is going to be the foundation for you know things like verifying your nationality or verifying your digital identity without actually exposing um you know a lot of personally identifiable information out there because privacy has always been important and was always and always going to be important but um the times the, the times are showing that you know there's there's a lot of uh struggle all over the world in regards to privacy versus uh versus non-privacy systems um for sure and you're giving out you know if you consider your daily lives you're giving out you know treasures of information on daily basis whether it's on your identity, properties, everything, you name it, you're just um, somehow bleeding information out to those uh, centralized services that you use on a daily basis. So why not stopping all that information flow and make the user in control and uh, somehow give this ability to user that without, for example, if I'm just mentioning a very extreme case, without sending your actual uh, you know biometric uh, uh, information into every and each service that you uh, uh, you encounter with you can somehow send a proof of it that okay i own this biometrics of this identity without exposing that biometrics by itself for example by using a cold cold pad 
uh, and these are not, uh, you know, fringe technologies. Actually, they were being in use with intelligence organizations for more than a decade right now. For example, the, the one I just named, the cold pad. The yeah. cold pad is for biometrics without exposing biometrics. That has been in use, not using the same technology as zero knowledge proof, but using some sort of technologies. They are somehow known to those who care for privacy, care for security to some critical extent. So by making it global in terms of usage and accessible to everyone actually around us, this uh, technologies has the potential to actually gain the future of any kind of operation and interaction that is happening digitally. Because yes, when you have the option of non disclosing, not disclosing your vital information or critical information, you will choose it for sure. When you uh, have the option of closing the door to your house, you close it. You have a door, you keep it closed. You don't open it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and I guess, yeah, like the uh, comfort is usually the big uh, enemy of, of privacy. The moment when Sacrifice privacy will become... Always. Uh, the second when uh, privacy will become a bit more... Um, I guess accessible and easier to use. That that's that's when people just start having issues with, with adopting these protocols and systems. But um, just to ask a, a few brief questions on the architecture as well. It's, uh, it's just you know I just find it very interesting. That's um, probably my favorite part of the episode. Usually when we do discussions specifically on the architecture and things like that. But uh, I assume that majority of the core business logic is completely on chain. Um, you have the front end, which I assume is in most um, interactions is just interactions with the contracts on chain. Um, but um, are there any particular features of functionality that still rely on some, you know, um, off like off chain computation? And if yes, can you um, just briefly touch on that? The front end is hosted. The front end and uh, some utility services are hosted as a Cloudflare uh, server uh, serverless modules. So uh, they are very, very much distributed so, and distributed uh, beside some core internet services. So they are highly improbable to go down or you know to be uh, somehow canceled, stopped, or something like that because. If they go down because of the uh, the architecture and the majority of the nodes and services uh, that Algorand relies on, we can make sure that Algorand will suffer as well. So those very fundamental infrastructural services, such as, for example, the 1111 DNS uh, service by Cloudflare, if that goes down, 40% of internet goes down. So that would be a catastrophe. And during catastrophes, no one counts. The, the how many services go down. But aside from those global catastrophes that are highly improbable to happen within the considerations of those services, uh, we needed to, because the decentralized uh, uh, hosting services and content content delivery services, they are not to the extent reliable that we needed for this service to be or distributed, but serverless modules from Cloudflare, they are distributed to the edge. They are actually processed on the edge instead of being on a centralized place. So if you're living on Montana, your uh, function is being, uh, 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 your function alongside with your static content are being processed and accessed from your nearest ISP in your region, Montana. So they are not uh, a call from a server from halfway around the world. 
this uh, single property uh, had us use the Cloudflare services in order to provide for content delivery and also some uh, utility functions, for example, logging, logging of the requests as pure as they come from the browsers. It is a necessary part of the story because we need to keep an eye on uh, some sort of security aspect of system, for example, avoiding the uh, 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 the, uh, some uh, some attack vectors and so on and so forth. So logging something like that. These kind of utility services they are provided as serverless functions and modules, or uh, or as they call it on Cloudflare workers. Serverless workers are the third part of the system, but they are not anywhere. Uh, when uh, you as a claimer uh, interact with your uh, 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 with chain, uh, with on-chain smart contracts using your front end. It is all you, your wallet, and Algorand blockchain. When you're claiming something and only when you're creating something or interacting as an author, those lugging and everything else located as serverless functions kick into place in order to keep a track of everything going on on the system. I see. So things like, um, I, I suppose, uh, Geofencing is is all primarily um, th like thanks to the um, exactly. serverless on the on the Cloudflare. Okay, yes, so yes. essentially, just uh, I suppose three major parts, right? The the, the front end um, geofencing done through um, Cloudflare and uh, edge compute and serverless, and we have the smart contracts, which are all live completely on chain, basically. The rule and sets are uh, are part of a smart contract. They got a sword on a smart contract, so you cannot change them. For example, you cannot change your geofencing uh, schema and uh, and your rules toward that. And but implementation and how. It, uh, for obvious reasons, you cannot you know, store a, lot, a large amount of arbitrary data on chain. So uh, we just use some uh, uh, serverless workers in order to do that off-chain computation aspect of the operation and just keep the uh, critical and uh, very vital and vital to be immutable and vital to be, uh, to be kept forever part of information on chain to... Uh, maintain the balance between what is needed to be processed and what is needed to be stored on chain. Exactly. And uh, I assume also this also implies um, comparing the same infrastructure that you would have maintained if you were to build this on a cloud hosting provi provider. I assume the, the, um, the hosting infrastructure uh, fees is, is significantly... Uh, actually, the fees about, you know... Uh, uh, do you run your own uh, node, actually? Do, do, do you guys yeah, run uh, your no, own? No, 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 no. I, I use a redundant, uh, failover redundant uh, and failover structure between uh, the node that I locally host on my digital ocean servers mm, okay. and also the quick node. The quick node, I, uh, here's a big shout out to those guys. Very close uh, collaborations and uh, very, very good service I just experienced from them. So very happy with that as a... Uh, right again, because you always have th that last connection and that last connectivity tandem to be on your turf. So I yeah. couldn't uh, somehow avoid that uh, mindset. And that failover structure, uh, the, uh, my local nodes are mainly uh, used for development and everything locally, but they kick in automatically whenever or by any reason the uh, quick node service got you know, disconnected or mm -hmm. uh, bubbled. They kick in automatically, so user will not 
see or face any kind of you know shortcoming or disconnection in the service i see i see and perhaps to continue on um you know if you can also br br briefly just touch on what were sort of the i would say the main challenges you, you had during oh, the implementation okay. and uh, any perhaps interesting ways in how you you test go plausible yeah for sure the main challenge is you know what is obvious to everybody uh, on the main uh, i think a little bit of wrong time because when i started to contribute i was still living in uh, my own country i uh, which is uh, a little bit restricted in uh, in any sense you can call and uh, and also uh, uh, we were in the list of embargoed countries I, I i'm originally persian but uh, for uh, for algorand and in order to be able to openly and freely contribute to algorand i just migrated to turkey two years ago and i'm living in turkey uh, since then but i think there was a little bit of time mismatch so i missed the uh, the fortune train by a little bit because uh, now we are living in you know bearish market very harsh time and actually right now the only problem we have is the uh, actual the fuel for for this progress which was plenty available even one year one year and a half ago but now it is not that time but for that uh, we are going to uh in order to face that challenge we the only uh, solution that we found was that not to limit ourselves to one community and one ecosystem because this is a globally usable system and we try to put everything complex in behind the scenes and just show a very familiar web 2 uh, uh style of communication and usership to, uh, to to our daily users so hopes are by going multi-chain and going a little bit more specific on more you know day-to-day -day usages because right now it is some kind of author should know what they're uh you know preparing the plus for but some kind of atomic use cases one click create a creation of some use case, for example, those use cases, along with going multi-chain, are our are, are, uh, our strategy and hope toward you know getting out of this you know uh, somehow restrictive era of you know uh, non-nurturing era that uh, we are facing. And for sure, the policies coming from U.S. Uh, policymakers is not helping this harsh times uh, yeah. by much but hopes are and when you listen to congress congressional hearings you know the bills are being proposed and everything the progress is on the pace and they are under getting uh, the feeling of okay this is not just yet another technology popping up from everywhere that trying to change the world this is something essential to the future and maybe we need to think twice about it think a little bit deeper about it rather than just give it to our consultants and ask for their opinion it is happening it, uh, you just listen to you know those hearings the senators the congress people the way they talk about the things is not superficial anymore when they talk now it means that okay they read something at least a large amount of information right now but a year ago it was all superficial just naming some acronyms and you know get along with it now it is very good so progress progress is always good <laughs> yeah and uh, i mean i don't think there's anything wrong with going multi-chain and uh, at all yep. like even silvio himself was mentioning that right there, there's going to be n chains that will eventually endure each of them will have their own unique edge cases and 
will serve its individual functionality and it, it's all about inter interoperability basically i guess algorand's strongest point is micropayments extremely fast finality right you can essentially rely on this because it scales to a large set of people and uh, there's a lot of unique um, things that could be built around the fact that you know the finality is so short essentially uh, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's you know the only chain that essentially uh, should you know endure and survive and it should capture the entire market uh, that's why Algorand has state proofs right the exactly uh, unfortunately I think it's still very undervalued uh, piece of tech because well we don't live in future where quantum computers attack everyone every day um, but the fact that it already exists and it's sort of this beacon of you know, potential interoperability is, 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 is really um, telling about how Algorand tries to foresee um, the events that can potentially come in near uh, or, um, you know, near distant future, basically. And uh, you, you mentioned state proofs. Um, anything you can expand on this just briefly? Actually, uh, let me, now that I have this opportunity to ask for something, you know, very publicly, it would be very much appreciated if uh, this line of you know work and implementation get a little bit more acceleration because in my humble opinion this is one of the things can that can persuade and actually push other you know non web3 uh, uh, policymakers or decision makers to think twice about usages and use case of this technology and give it a more uh, serious thought and more serious look and assessment. Uh, I think the sooner we can get the state proofs into uh, into our you know daily developer and daily user uh, routines and uh, processes and uh, uh, normal operations, the bigger chance we stand to be, you know, recognized as globally usable technology, not only as, a, you know, some some means for some financial systems and so on and so forth, a global tool and and a global uh, problem solving uh, platform and solution. This can help it so much. You know, this is one of the golden keys, in my humble opinion. Again, maybe many people you know, somewhat disagree with me, but I think this is one of the greatest vectors, one of our you know power levers that we can count on in order to achieve to that point without any you know descriptive efforts. Because right now we have to explain why this is good. The, it is immutable. It is fast. It is you know proven. You're able to have your history intact for your transactions and so on and so forth. Lots of properties. We need to describe them. But if but with those uh, with zero knowledge proofs implemented in our daily operations and daily uh, you know uh, life uh, real uh, real life and real world errands, I think that that's a, a you know landscape changer. And everybody can see it clearly that, okay, this technology doesn't have a peer in traditional world and we need to employ this one. We need to, we need to give it a chance. We need to use it. Exactly. Yeah. Like I absolutely agree with you. It's uh, certainly something that um, is, is a great vector for, for, for expansion and there uh, after after the original announcements on this, I think there's still a lot of uh, work in terms of, um, I guess, general applications of state proofs, and and uh, perhaps a lot of, I guess, room for expansion and collaboration with uh, with other ecosystems in this regard. The biggest issue, I guess, right now is simply um, for 
for the, like you need to have a nurturing environment for people to build on a technology not because it's great but you know a lot of um, ventures for example they wouldn't invest in something that doesn't potentially have a let's say large target audience or whatever and if in, in case of something that promises for a lot of security it needs a, it needs a lot of actual applications in this regard so uh, potentially ethereum for example is 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 a big 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 competition to basically overcome because the main um sentiment uh, that started popping up and i guess it's common for bear market in general is like okay i'm i got you know n uh, dollars invested in me over the past couple of months i'm about to choose a blockchain on which i'm going to build um, in most cases he will have to prioritize or he or she will have to prioritize picking uh, a blockchain that has a lot of market cap and unfortunately biggest out there is uh well we have bitcoin you can't really do a lot of smart contracts on uh, native bitcoin la layer of course there are tools that allow you to do it i'm not going to get into that uh discussion then you have ethereum and probably ethereum is, is currently the biggest one if you get on it you you, you you probably get a lot of exposure to the users and um that, that that's the big barrier at the moment it's not even coming to you know discussions over technology these days people given the conditions of the market simply have to prioritize something that can you know sustain profit over a period of time and then potentially expand to things that are obviously more um you know more beneficial and more efficient and more secure and things like that but once again yeah it, it all comes down to adoption and uh Essentially, that's that's what uh, a lot of people, I think, at, at, at Algorand and affiliates are are being focused at the moment. Um, it's um, the period of you know trying to see the direction goes. The direction is totally okay. Conditions may not be nurturing, but the direction, uh, I think, the community and the technology, uh, totally okay. It is totally correct because it's aiming. Yes, the road is very hard. You have. Because one other thing I'm, I, I, I just want to add is we should not forget about the timing because every technology, when it starts, if it's some kind of interesting technology, it experiences a hype time. And during that hype time, when Ethereum was hyping, there was no algorithm. So they are ahead of us. That is the fact we cannot, you know, evade. we should accept that. But when we are intending to create a paradigm shift and actually have all the potential and everything necessary in terms of, okay, means, tools, potential, talent, whatever it is, we have it. I think it's just a matter of time. And again, being patient and deterministic about it and just think about the destination and go, going toward that. With that mindset and just a, with a little bit of time passing, I think after, because we just witnessed the hype time and hype era for all cryptos coming to an end. After that, if there is a hype, that's a hype based on real use case and real value because the values that, you know, those tokens, yes, Bitcoin is a, some, a, some kind of exception because it was the first one pioneered the new era and so on and so forth. But for other ones, some of those token prices are not based on the real value and the real impact yeah, in the exactly. real, real world. They're just hype. Yes, it is, for example, $1,000 or something like that. You cannot do any kind of math around it. There is no transaction-wise, user-base-wise, even a simple card payment provider in traditional banking world beat them easily in every kind of calculation on math, you know, numbers, volume, everything. 
but they experienced the hyped era and because their community were totally felt comfortable with everything that they have, their NFTs, their marketplaces, the DEXs, everything, it continued to keep some of that momentum they gained during that hype era. For Algorand, that hype era didn't last so much. So we didn't gain so we didn't gain so much momentum during that. And we are uh, somehow exhausting that little momentum that we gained during that hype era. We didn't go beyond $2, if I'm correct. So the momentum is uh, smaller, but the potential and talent is much bigger. So we stand uh, a lot of uh, uh, more chance if we got solid in what we do, go toward, don't think about the hardship. Yes, we get damaged, we get hurt for sure. But don't think about it as I want to quote from the Lawrence of Arabia that says, yes, it does hurt, but the point is not minding that it hurts. I think this way, with with not not minding that it hurts and just continue with our passion and our building, we can get there eventually because, again, the technology has the potential. I Yeah, I absolutely agree with your point. I, I've been on a Ethereum conference recently and uh, there was, uh, I, I had experience trying that uh, com- competition of yours uh, and uh, I believe it's called Poop Inc., right? The, yes, yes. Uh, I think it was Poop Inc., actually, and uh, like not to bash any technology out there and biggest exist, but I had a pretty bad experience actually. I wasn't able to claim it. There was issues with basically uh, transaction uh, being propagated. Create and- that you, uh, first uh, uh, up until a year ago, I think, if I'm not wrong, uh, uh, you need to send emails to creators and send your information, ask for a app to be created and they got to decide if they want to do it or not and respond you via email. And then they created a web form for you to send your information after that. So it is very good. It was a very good idea, but it was limited, first of all, to one use case. And it was to many extent centralized, to many extent not permissionless and not uh, 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 trustless. So what needed to be done is to you know rethink the whole thing and that process led to creation of that you know proof of anything protocol yeah. why not create something much better and much more flexible doing that as a part of a story but cover a lot of more use cases why not doing that and once you get used to this three point three second finality you start you just can't go like uh for example uh i think they used polygon in that case uh for you know attendance on the ethereum conference and i I remember it was at least 15 to 20 minutes for this thing to basically get propagated and i was like i thought for that it's a bug on my phone or something like that like you you get used to uh certain things that you only start appreciating when you experience you know other technologies you got wondered and shocked what happened because (laughs) You used to, okay, I press send and it's there. You go there, okay, I just press, I was converting using change now. I was converting something to, uh, I needed some ether on my Ethereum to uh, to be able to something on Ethereum. Uh, I was, I did, I totally forget about that for a second. And I just, okay, something went wrong. My, my trans, when, when is it going to, to arrive? And I just remember, oh, it's Ethereum, man. You should wait, <laughs> be patient. <laughs> it's an uh, algorithm, wait. <laughs> and I'm realizing that uh, we went a little bit over time. I'm sorry if we uh, uh, spent too much on the architecture side, but uh, 
I guess uh, just to, because you already answered um, a lot of the points in regards to um, the future roadmap, right? The things that uh, are being planned for interoperability. And uh, I think it would be amazing if uh, somehow state proofs are going to be involved in this regard. It's certainly going to be, um, you know, the more use cases are there uh, for, for using these technologies, the, the better for the success of the overall chain and not just Algorand itself. I think it's a, it's a great way for anyone to basically use uh, the, the, the Falcon signature right if you want some sort of um which i believe is still to this point is like is the closest thing to um the cutting edge sort of uh, research that is happening in regards to uh things that uh, quantum computers can't tamper with um and uh, if you were to give an advice um no, no, on <laughs> on sort of essential you know skills and uh experience for you know uh, successful engagement with blockchain development um what what um, advice would you give to you know aspiring software engineers who would like themselves to uh try some blockchain development in general and this is usually something i ask to most of the guests but if you want we can be even more specific and what advice would you give um to aspiring software engineers who are targeting to specifically build something on Algorand, basically. So it's, uh, I guess. General. First of all, in general, uh, first of all, I'm not in that place to give advice, but I can, uh, you know, just share what I've learned, some of it in hard way. First of all, don't get uh, the day you think that you're satisfied, you know, you have whatever you need and you don't need anything more, even for a week or even for a day. That's the day you actually uh, some assassinated your career as a developer, or as a builder. So as and I'm quoting this, stay hungry, changing it about knowledge and about gaining knowledge on everything. Don't get settled with, uh, you know, your own niche or your domain and always uh, try to stay up to date with other trends, other domain, other your niches. Even if the uh, uh, if they're not you know somehow overlapping or interfering uh, with your uh, line of business, but keeping yourself up to date as a builder or developer with all of those trends and know what's going on in different areas of tech and science would help you greatly. And secondly, I think this is the thing I learned in a hard way, but we are living in a a little bit cruel uh, mindset era where uh, all of the developers are advised, if you create something, make sure you get paid for it. This is a very harsh and very straight and very frank one and coming from actually a very hard experience for me, no matter how kind, how you know, humble, whatever you are. If you create a bit, a line of code and somebody else uh, says, hey, it's good, your next word what should, should be, how much are you going to pay for it? Because uh, uh, when you do this, I, I, I'm saying this with, with very heavy heart, but uh, people don't care if Beethoven plays piano on the subway. Nobody, nobody would even, you know, care to turn their head watching, you know, Beethoven or Mozart playing in a subway because the mindset tells them if you get it free, it's cheap. It doesn't worth it. So be expensive, sell yourself very expensive in order to be noticed. If you want to be noticed, there's no humble way to do that. Even if, if it means to fake being uh, you know, expensive 
uh, I just learned it very hard way, but for young developers, I totally you give this advice. This is more solid than the first one even. Uh, so uh, make sure you take care of your financial uh, aspect and your you know, monetary aspect, as well as you uh, have your passion about the building. Because sometimes for people, uh, you need to keep some aspect of your child, inner child alive in order to be a good builder or good developer. You need to be excited with technology. You need to be excited with you know display tools that you find. So that aspect stays with you. And a child doesn't have a regard or doesn't have a you know importance or prioritized level of mind for you know money or for you know gaining opportunities or for benefits if you give in with that part of you and just go with that flow you will you know uh, suffer consequently so keep a balance between the two keep the child alive but keep that uh, keep that adult watching over that child and constantly you know ask for you know here here here's what the child has created and I'm the adult how much are you going to pay for it? <laughs> that's 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 an amazing advice I would say it's uh, certainly like I certainly can agree with this more like the the passion no matter how passionate you are about any particular domain of engineering uh, or just you know computer science in general that passion is only sustainable as long as that is as long as the conditions in which you are are sustainable and to sustain it we live in you know in a society where uh, a lot of things are unfortunately very materialistic and so you have to worry about well thanks. Uh, but it is what it is. It, it yeah. is out there. It is the dominant mindset. And as I, you know, exactly give you an example, if you, you know, take that Beethoven and put their, you know, put him in the Albert Hall Saloon in London, people would happily pay hundred thousand dollar per seat for the front row to hear Beethoven playing, and they don't even care if that's, you know, what is the name as much as he is playing in Albert Hall Saloon. So it is expensive. So it should be something. So 70% of people there don't have a clue what the music is, what this player name is, what is his background, what did he go through to be on this stage. They just come here to hear a music which worth $10,000 ticket. This is for 70 or 80% out there. And this goes for the uh, for the VCs, investors, and everybody out there, managers, you know, you name it. Everybody has this mindset. So go with it. Don't carry the, don't be carried away with your passion that much. Keep a balance between the two and you will be good to go. Awesome. And maybe just as a very last note, as you mentioned, being open-minded in regards to the latest trends and things that are happening in the technology, just wanted to bring out one very interesting, I guess, area of research that uh, is potentially something that I guess happening is currently in the Ethereum ecosystem, but um, um, the area of um, zero-knowledge machine learning, which I think if I'll grant us to go the way um, to, you know, start exploring zero knowledge further in regards to how things like, for example, state proofs can be applied and etc. Um, or ethical there, AI. There, there, there's a very, very interesting area basically on how you can make, you know, things like decentralized Kaggle, for example, deploying and solving AI challenges without revealing how your model is built, how exactly it was trained, basically introducing yeah. a bit more privacy into these systems. But um uh, no, things like that can only happen if you're looking at sorry and the ethical aspects of it because of course. 
you, you know, there is no other way. Uh, recently, there is no way except for accessing the whole data and the whole process they went through to train those models. There's no way that you can, you know, check for some kind of truth or for uh, some kind of rule or for some kind of citation or fact. Yes, in that large language model, for example. And uh, by that, uh, using that uh, 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 sort of technology for zero-knowledge proofs, you can at least make sure by having an index of these embedded or these inferencing data that is being added as a training to that uh, uh, language model or information model, as you can call it, you, you can make sure at least you have a manifest that proves that we consider these vectors, we consider these data as factual data, and this is the proof for it. You can have it, you can verify it without going through the whole complexity of the AI system and, the, uh, 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 and also the large model. So it makes the verification in terms of our ethical uh, verification, for factual verification, everything. It makes it much easier for produce uh, 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 learning models to be you know assessed and checked afterwards their creation yeah so it's definitely going to be interesting to see how this area of research is being uh, evolved and uh, would be glad to hear some ways where algorand can basically uh, apply its tech because yeah there oh. it seems to be the only area of synergy in terms of ai and cryptography these cool. days um but on that note once again mj Thanks again for being an amazing guest on the on the show, and uh, so much, looking yeah. forward to see uh, some new developments and uh, uh, improvements on the GoPlausible platform. And uh, yeah, uh, for everyone who paired with us to this long conversation, thank you for listening and uh, stay tuned for new episodes. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure and an honor. I hope everybody enjoys it. Thank you so much, Al. Uh -huh.